Amen. All right. It is a little warm already. I don't know if, if is anyone else warm or is it just me? Yeah. Can we, um, uh, <laughs> that's, I don't know what Josh is mumbling, but <laughs> it won't be, um, okay. Anyway, we, we start in Thessalonians and initially, um, initially this, this series was going to be called Life in Transit and then we changed it to Living a Godly Life. It's about both those things. This book is about both those things and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in a second. Um, The, the question I want to pose at the beginning is, uh, are you an imitator or an imitation? That won't mean anything to you right now. An imitator of what? An imitation of what? You know. But are you an imitator or an imitation? And we'll get to that a little bit later. But just kind of keep that question. We give a lot of room in our society to beginnings, to origin stories. Even like Marvel movies will, will like make a lot of the origin story once we can... Once we kind of finish the series, it's not finished, because you know what we have now? The origin story, how it all began. Um, and we give a lot of time to beginnings. We have birthdays every year. We re-celebrate that until you get to a certain age, then you no longer celebrate, but you put up with having a, a birthday. There's anniversaries. They just get better and better. They're unlike birthdays. The longer you go with an anniversary, the greater you celebrate it. Um, Sorry, birthdays are like that as well. You just don't share your age. You know, like when you're younger, you're proud. I'm 10, two hands. You don't do that when you're 40. Two hands, four times. <laughs> uh, you no longer boast. You kind of just admit your age. Um, we do that with the start of companies, with this, you know, when does school start, when does... Ho- we, we have beginning. we just record beginnings all the time. And the, there's a beginning of the church as well, or churches. King's Cross has a beginning. The church in Thessalonica had a beginning. That's what Paul's writing to a church that he started in a city called Thessalonica. He calls them the Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians. They had a start. They weren't always there. But the start of a church is like nothing else in the whole world. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. Um, and it's very exciting. And, and some of the things we're going to go through this morning is how is the church started? What a church looks like? What is the result of the church? I know these headings sound super boring. Even saying them sounds super boring. But I promise you it's less boring <laughs> than it sounds. And if you're not a Christian um, and you're visiting with us, I'm just so glad you're here. Every, almost every week we have people who aren't Christians who are curious about Jesus or open about Jesus and so that's, that, that's great. Welcome. You know, you're welcome to be here. We're so excited. There's nothing more wonderful that you, you could be looking into than who is Jesus and what does he mean for your life. That's great, a great discovery. Um, so welcome. But I imagine that for you, this is even, it even sounds even more boring. Who cares about the church? Now I'm going to learn about the whole history and everything else. promise you it won't be that boring. Um, and I might have just lied, but we'll see. Okay, so the history of the text. This is how we get to this text. This is what happened here. Paul, you go read Acts 17. It gives you the whole history. Paul is ministering in Philippi. Paul always ministers in teams. Paul is a great apostle. Paul was a guy who was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. Paul was killing Christians, arresting Christians. He hated Christians. He was one of the smartest uh, Jewish guys who, le- who, who was alive. He was one of the greatest Jewish scholars and he hated Christians. It was the greatest threat to Jewish religion. And he was persecuting them and killing them. And then Paul um, gets a, Jesus meets Paul uh, in, a, in a marvelous vision, vision. 
Paul is blinded for three days. He's told the whole gospel uh, by Jesus and the good news of what Jesus has done. And then he's prayed for uh, and his eyes are healed. And then he's told to go and preach the good news. And so Paul's whole life pivots in a three-day kind of event from persecuting Christians to going to the known world and telling everyone that Christ is the way, the only way. It's this massive radical turn. And so now Paul has guys, who, guys and girls who follow, follow him and go with him, and they travel together and they teach together. And everywhere they go, they're telling the story of what Christ has done so that we could be reconciled with God, that everyone can know God. Um, so Paul doesn't think he's better than anyone. He knows that he's the worst of all sinners. He was killing the very people God was saving. Like killing or, or arresting the very people God was freeing. Um, so he knows, you know, that, that's how, that's, if Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. And that's the idea of Christianity. God doesn't save saints, he saves sinners. And so they go to Philippi and they're preaching the gospel. And this very well-to-do lady named Lydia uh, gets saved. She becomes a Christian. And then she takes them into her kind of big house and all, uh, everyone that works for her and all of her family, they're all in this house together. And he, she asks him to preach to them. And Paul and his friends preach to them. And they all get saved. So Lydia and her whole household get saved. They get baptized. They become Christians. Paul and them carry on teaching. The, the uh, city is disturbed by this. And um, one of the things that uh, happens, I think, in the history here, sorry if I get my history all bent out of shape now, uh, is that there's a, there's a demon-possessed girl who can tell fortunes, and Paul has kind of put up with her for a while, over a few days, but eventually gets sick of it and just says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. He frees her, but she can no longer tell fortunes um, because she's free. And her owners are now upset because they can't make money off of her fortune-telling. And so they make a big kerfuffle, uh, about this, um, I, I forget now if that's in Thessalonica or Philippi. Um, however, uh, this is uh, part of the story, I guess. Um, anyway, in Philippi, the Jewish leaders are quite upset, and they get the mob to, um, they, they disturb because people are coming to Christ, people are starting to uh, communicate the gospel, people are starting to be followers of Jesus. And so the Jewish leaders are upset by this, and they get a, uh, get a rowdy mob to complain about this, and they go and they seek to arrest Paul, Silas, and Timothy, or Paul and Silas at this stage. And they go to Jason's house, and they can't find, uh, is this, no, sorry, they go and arrest them, and they beat them in Philippi. They beat them up, and then they put them in jail, and they say, don't teach anymore. <coughs> and that night, a great uh, Paul and Silas are singing in the jail, and a great earthquake comes. The jail doors are open, the chains are, are broken, and, and all the prisoners are free. They can walk out. And the jailer comes in and realizes, oh no, all the doors are open and the chains are gone. The prisoners are probably gone. I, I'm going to be, I haven't done my job. I'm going to be killed. So he's about to kill himself. It's kind of the more honorable way to die is kill yourself because you haven't done your job properly. And Paul and Silas scream out to him, no, stop. We're here. Don't worry. No one has left. We're all just sitting as freed men in a jail. We're fine. Don't kill yourself. Then he says to them, he realizes this is an act of God. God has done something. And he says, how can I be saved? And they preach the gospel to the jailer. And the jailer takes them out of prison at night to his house, gets everyone awake, says, preach the gospel to them. The jailer's whole household gets saved and baptized. And the next morning, 
the government leaders, come, the officials come to the jail and they say to Paul and Silas, they warn them, um, or sorry, they forgive, the, they, they um, say sorry because they found out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens and beating them is illegal. And now the, the government officials have broken the law. So they come and apologize to Paul and Silas and ask them to leave quietly. Uh, we've done you wrong, please leave silently uh, and don't cause a mess. And so Paul and Silas move along to Thessalonica, wounded, they arrive, and they preach here in Acts 7, it says they're here for seven, seven Sabbaths, they're preaching in, uh, three Sabbaths, they're preaching in the synagogue. So they're probably there for a little bit longer than that, but we're told about three, three kind of instrumental Sabbaths where they're preaching. The Jewish leaders get upset by this because people are getting saved. Uh, devout pe- Greeks are getting saved. Um, influential women are getting saved. So all sorts of people are getting saved. And the, the Jewish leaders who like to control the religion of the day see that this is going to be a problem for them. And they get the mob to uh, rise up against um, Paul and Silas and say this, they, that they're causing a great disturbance. And so the, they come looking for them to seize them in Jason's house. And they can't find them in Jason's house. And so they seize Jason and all the people there. And then Jason has to pay a bond um, to get out and make this commitment that, you know, they won't house them and they won't let them preach and they won't. But, and then Jason and them go to Paul and Silas and say, hey, you've got to get out tonight. We'll, we'll get you out safely. But uh, things are heating up here. You've got you to move on. So Paul and Silas move on. But you can imagine their great fear over time is, What's happened to the Thessalonians? We weren't finished teaching them, training them, leading them, discipling them. They were very young Christians when we left. They had just received the gospel. It hadn't yet borne fruit. We hadn't organized the church. And so they sent Timothy with, with uh, curiosity, are the Thessalonians okay? Have they turned back to idols? Have they turned back to gods? Have they turned back to religion? How are they going? And Timothy comes back with a report that the Thessalonians are doing fantastic. The church is growing. They're loving God, loving each other. They're getting on. And it's just so delightful. And that's how Paul begins this letter. He tells us that they, they have this thanksgiving. So this is kind of the history of the text and why Paul's writing. He's just got word back from Timothy. And Timothy's told him a few things about the church um, some things that are a little bit not right, and Paul's going to correct those things later on in the letter. Like one of the things that it seems the Thessalonians are doing is they're so sure that Jesus is coming back tomorrow that, they all, that some of them are quitting their jobs and just sitting around doing nothing, waiting. Like, well, Jesus is probably coming back, like maybe by lunch, so I'm not going to work today. Um, and Paul kind of corrects him. He's like, no, you got it. Like, you keep working. You know, just keep it. Keep, expect Jesus, but keep working. He, Jesus is coming back, but until he does, work. Uh, provide for yourself. Um, so there's, there's a few like corrections, like just practical things that they may be getting wrong a little bit. Um, but he does it a little bit later on. But he starts off with Thanksgiving. So how was this church started? Paul says <coughs> that he, is in, he and his company know the Thessalonians are loved and chosen by God. First of all, there's a, there's a sign there about uh, how church is started. Church is started with a group of people that are loved and chosen by God. What a great way to start. I, I think that's almost like adoption. Maybe that's exactly like adoption. Um, because Nas and I have had four children, 
And uh, they, they, some of them were accidents, pleasant accidents. But uh, you can never really say that about an adopted child. An adopted child, you have to say, you were loved and chosen. We, we loved you and we chose you. You know, but uh, uh, we've got a few adopted kids in our family, extended family. They don't look like us. Um, they, uh, my one nephew's got a much better tan than I have. Um, and he will never look like anyone in the family biologically. But the one thing he has on all of us is that he can say to us, but I'm loved and chosen. He says, Zeke, you look like your dad and your mom. But you know what? We may be the same age, but I'm loved and chosen. <laughs> you may be loved, but were you chosen? <laughs> the Christian church is started with adoption, that God adopts uh, sinners into his family. He chooses us. And Paul and Silas are able to say, we know that you are loved and chosen. And secondly, they say, we know that because the gospel came to you in word and power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's what he writes. And we don't know exactly what power means. Probably, it's probably miracles, signs, wonders, because many times where Paul preached, uh, wherever the, the apostles went, these signs did follow. But what, it's certainly, what we certainly know is power is the power of conviction, because Paul tells us about that the power of conviction by the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians knew when they heard the gospel that this was truth. You can tell two people the gospel of Jesus Christ, and one of them can say, yeah, that sounds good, Jesus. Jesus is, is God who has come into our world to live a life that we couldn't live, a life of righteousness and goodness without sin. He's, he lived a perfect life. He died in our place uh, as, a, as punishment for sin. He took it. He died in our place. He was raised to life. He was given authority over all things so that He can call us now as sinners. We can come to Him and we can be forgiven in Him, not because of our own righteousness, but because of His righteousness. We can become children of God. And one person can say, oh, that sounds very good. Wow, a freebie. I don't know. I think I'll go look, check out Buddha and see what other... You know, kind of like Islam. You can do a lot more, you can do a lot more in that religion. You know, God requires a lot more of you there. Or I don't know, maybe, one, maybe the Greek gods. I mean, you had to kind of be a slave of theirs to, to make them happy. I, I think I kind of like that. I like, I'm, a, I'm more of a doer than a receiver of grace. Um, or you, and, this, and another person might go, wow, that's the news I've been waiting to hear all my life. It gets straight to their heart. And they know that, that Jesus has done everything for them that they ever needed finished, they ever needed done, and that Jesus is the one who satisfies the longing of their hearts. What is that? The Holy Spirit bringing conviction. You know, I, a, a friend says, um, he wished he could just, man, Kai and Ruth, you need to have your own little play date and go, go have your long chat that you sound like you're wanting to have. Already two little ladies just chatting away. And I completely forgot where I was. <laughs> All right, let's just move on. So full conviction. It comes with full conviction. We wish we could throw people into heaven. Wish you, wish you could make someone a Christian. Wish you could say, if you come to church eight weeks in a row, 
You guys, you, you, you Christians, if you come 16 weeks in a row, you're doubly saved. If you come the whole year, you are like out there Christians. And if you go to church like Theo does three or four times a day, you are like the golden standard of Christian. Sorry, Sunday, not every day. The golden standard. And if you go to prayer meeting as well, oh, I mean, you're with the saints that the world is not worthy of you. They're going to write your name in the new Hebrews book one day. Those of you who know the book of faith, uh, the chapter of faith in Hebrews. I w- wished we could do that. But it, no one can be saved that way. Only through the co- hearing the gospel and receiving the conviction of the Holy Spirit that this is truth and receiving it by the grace of God are we saved. And Paul says, that happened with you. You had a full conviction by the Holy Spirit that the message of Jesus was true and you received it. That's how we know that you are loved and chosen by God. And so the church was started. They received it. What does a healthy church look like? Often, often when we talk about healthy churches, and I'm sorry, this might sound a bit boring for those who, who aren't regular churchgoers. Um, when, sometimes when we think about healthy churches, we talk about like ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a word that talks about the structure of the church. We think about theological organization. And we go, oh yeah, okay, so a, health, a healthy church has... Um, Elders, biblical elders, because the Bible talks about that. Paul says to Timothy and Titus, go set in order what was lacking. I'm going to send you there and like you finish off because it's not well organized. You go put elders in place. Go put deacons in place. Uh, There must be biblical preaching, which I'm trying to do this morning as best as I can. There must be some uh, gifts that are at work in the body of Christ. So what is a healthy church? It's got all these these spiritual gifts and preaching and elders and deacons and and we think about that as the signs of, the healthy, of a healthy church, the gospel's preached. But that's not at all what Paul talks about. Maybe that's the signs of healthy theological organization. What should, how should the church be organized? The problem when we think about that as the healthy signs of a church is that we start to think that anyone that looks different to us is not a healthy church. You know, and then you start thinking, oh, like, which is the better type of church? Oh, I don't know if I could be part of that type of church because they're not, you know, they've got, I don't know, whatever. Their clergy comes in robes, and the Bible doesn't say, and they, that you have to call their clergy father, and the Bible says, call no man father. It says, I'm biblical. We start dividing ourselves on the organization, and Paul talks about a healthy, this healthy church here, and he gives us not organization, but he gives us these other three signs, and I'm going to show you, because he gives them over and over and over to the letters, and these are better signs of a healthy church. Number one, he says, uh, a sign of a healthy church is your work of faith. Most times in the New Testament, faith and work are separated because we are saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. So, so oftentimes, Paul tries to separate as far as he can. You don't work to get saved. You're not trying to please God so that He'll save you. You're not trying to pray enough or do enough good things so that God will save you and you'll be pleasing. No, you're saved because God's immensely loving and in grace He did it all through Jesus and He chose you. You just receive it. It's good news. It's a present under a gift. You just, it's got your name on it. You take it. You open it. You enjoy it. But once we're saved, there's a kind of a, a natural work that comes from this. It's the work of faith. It's not the work to get faith. It's not the work to prove faith. It's just the work of faith. It's separate to salvation. What is the work of faith? Paul says in verse 9, you turned 
uh, to God from idols. He explains it to Titus even better. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What brought salvation for all people? The grace of God appeared. Who, who, who was it? Jesus. So the grace of God through Jesus appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, that means to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace of God appeared, it brought salvation for all people, and those who were saved, all the people that are saved, are trained by that same grace to renounce, say no, to ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, to turn from idols to God. So what is the work of faith? The work of faith is turning from sin to God. It's putting off sin and putting on godliness. It's saying no to things that God says no to and yes to things that God says yes to. So that's the first reason for Paul's thanks. He's saying, I see, I've heard, you know, in, in Thessalonica there were 25 gods, at least 25 gods, and Mount, you could see Mount Olympus from Thessalonica. So Mount Olympus is where all the Greek gods lived. So if, you, if you've watched any of the Marvel movies, Zeus and all of them, the, all these Greek gods, Thor, um, they live on Mount Olympus. And from Thessalonica, you could see Mount Olympus. So they believe the Greek gods are right there and they're serving them, at least 25 of them. Um, and Paul says, you have turned from those gods. You no longer live for them. You no longer live for Aphrodite. You no longer live for power. You no longer live for money. You no longer live for sex. You no longer live for, and he, you know, you've turned from those things. You've turned from the world's ways that say these things will satisfy you. These things will give you what you desire, pleasure, comfort, security. You know, the world says, if you have enough money, you'll feel secure. The world says, if you have enough pleasure, you'll be happy. The world says, if you have enough adventures, you'll be a real person. Uh, you'll have an Instagram account worth Instagramming. The, the world says, the world says, Paul says, you've turned from that to God. He gives you security. He brings you pleasure. It's Him that you find beautiful. It's Him that you're following. He's guiding and leading your life. It's the work of faith. They've turned away and they're trusting God. Number two, he calls it a labor of love. So let's say one is work. There's a work. It's, it's, it's a bit hard. You work at it. You work at it to turn away from sin. Any over here, anyone over here, raise your hand quickly if you're perfect. Just raise your hand. I just want to, because if there's anyone here that's not a Christian, I just want you to, to look at a room full of Christians. And please raise your hand if you're perfect. Notice that. No Christian is perfect. No Christian should think they're superior to anyone else. Why? Because we're working at turning from sin. It's an ongoing uh, battle to put off and to put on. One that we can win. One that we have the mighty power and grace of God to win. One that through Jesus we're able to because He has defeated sin. So we're more than conquerors. But, but we're not perfect yet. We're not there yet right? We still live here. So we work. But then he says, your labor of love. Now, labor in the Greek is a word much harder than work. Work is like a vocation. You go do it. It's like you just take off sin. Just, just do it. You must work at it. Labor is this great effort. It might exhaust you. It might cause you to sweat. Uh, one of my little girls um, went for a run around the block 
which is not a big block, and came back, and they were like, I cannot do any more. I'm like, you, you don't look tired. You're hardly breathing. You look fine. He goes, I know, but I feel like, and there was a pause, because I don't think they thought I was going to be able to even believe or imagine what they were about to say. Dad, you might not have experienced this in your life, but try and understand that I feel like I might start sweating. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, you better not go around the block again because who knows what could happen. <laughs> Labor of love means you might start sweating. You will get exhausted. You might get muddy and dirty and you might have a good night's sleep because it was, uh, you spent yourself. Your labor of love. It's a walk. I'm just trying to get W's. You've got to work. You've got to walk. You've got to do it. You've got to go there. You've got to walk into it. You've got to lean in. It's practical. It's proactive. No one can tell you what it's going to be tomorrow. What's your labor of love tomorrow? We don't know. What does labor of love look like? Paul says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So I, I work to say no to sin, and I turn to trust God. And as I turn to trust God, I say to God, how do you want to use my life? What do you want to do with my life? If, if from, a, from a high school age, you start saying like, God, what, what plans do you have for my life? What do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? What do you want to use me for? How do you want me to serve you? And that never stops. All of us, every day. God, how do you want to use me today? My, and, and that's, I'm serving God. It's a labor of love. And Paul says that the best way that... Um, is seen, he says to uh, the Galatians, sorry, I'm skipping a few verses, but he says to the Galatians, those who are slaves to God, do what exactly? And he calls all of us in Romans, he calls all of us, you know, God's servants, God's slaves. It's, it's a good word. It's, it's this like bond. We own by him. God, I, I'm yours. Yeah, I, I, you own me. Take my life. Do with me what you want, God. I want to serve you. What do we do? What does that look like? Paul says to the Galatians, he says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Old Testament had ten laws that the Jews had that started with, uh, you shall have no gods before your God. God must be first. And then nine others that kind of outworked that, like don't murder, don't uh, commit adultery, don't blah, blah, blah. So there's these 10. They turned into 623, I think that is, because they wanted, the, the Jews wanted to make sure they didn't break the 10. So they created these boundaries of 623. And then they put those into bigger boundaries of 2,000 and something. You know, so you knew how to comb your hair, how to wash your hands, how to blah, 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 so that you stayed well within, so that you could uh, be sure to be doing the 10 commandments. Then Jesus comes along and he teaches that the law is not just about, you know, don't murder. He says, don't be angry. It's about the heart. If you're angry, it's the same as murder. Instead of don't commit adultery, he says, don't lust in your heart. Lust is kind of where adultery comes from. So he says, deal with your hearts. Get down to your hearts, not just your behavior. And they say to him, Jesus, what's the greatest law? And he gets kind of tested. And Jesus says, someone desperately needs you, Dave. That's okay. Um, Jesus says, the greatest law is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says two. So he takes 2,000 and gives two laws. 
Just two. And, the, and you know, it's getting smaller and smaller. Thanks, George. Then Paul comes along. And Paul takes the 10, the 600, the 2,000, the 2, and he takes it to 1. And he says the whole entire law of God is summed up in this. Love your neighbor. Love other people. How can the whole law of have no gods before God be summed up in loving other people? Michael Eaton, the great theologian who's now dead, says this. Because you can't say you love God if you don't love who God loves. It's the practical outworking of loving God is you love what God loves and God loves His people. And the most practical way of seeing love for God is seeing people loving one another. When we lived in America, there were, there were actual bumper stickers. I say this now and like everyone looks at me confused, but I remember seeing them that said, uh, love Jesus but not the church, or I love Jesus but not the church. Paul would say, that's not possible. You can't love Jesus but not love the people He loves. That's what Paul would say. Now, the church isn't perfect, so it's easy to not love the church. The, the church, we hurt one another, we offend one another. The church is, is not as lovely and gentle and kind as Jesus is. It's not as easy to love as Jesus is. It's much easier to say, I love the perfect being who has done everything to save me and puts up with me and is kind to me and gentle to me and forgives me and longs to be with me. Oh, I love Him. But I don't love those who take from me, who ignore me, who hurt me, who offend me. Oh, no, I don't want to. And Paul goes, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Jesus loves them just the same as He loves you. And you, you, you are just as difficult to him, for Jesus as they are for you. But He loves you anyway. And as His love is poured out through your heart, express it to them. That's how you really get to know God's love, is by loving difficult people. Our brothers and our sisters. Love one another. So our work, our walk is to love. Sorry, Andy, can you put the heat down, please? It's getting sleepy warm in here. So you call to work, put off sin. You call to walk, love one another. How does that look? Who knows? Because you'll only you, tomorrow, one of you might need something. That's when it, that's when we know how to love one another. But we show up amazed. Uh, I'm nervous of exalting in people, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've been amazed by Caleb and Haley while Luke and Kelly have been here. Eight Sundays they've been here and eight Sundays they've been at church. And the only reason is not religion. Caleb and Haley don't believe in that. They don't believe that their coming to church is going to save them. And it's not. But you know what they do believe in? Love. And I've asked them. I even encouraged them. You know, don't come back for the weekend. Just keep, just stay on holiday. Just go away. So I think they missed a couple, a week or two because Kaya was born. <laughs> a baby came out of someone's body and they missed a Sunday. I think we can accept that. 
But the answer, and it's not their words, but the answer in, paraphrased in my words was, we want to be with our community. We love them. Now, no one in this room is exactly like Caleb and Haley. Not the same necessary, the same interests, same life, same age, same jobs, same hobbies. But you are their loved. Why? Because Jesus loves you. And they love Jesus. And so Jesus is giving them a love for you. And they express it by showing up. I think, and, and sorry if you're a visitor, because this sounds harsh, but this is one of those hard things when, when as Western Christians, like we choose whether we show up or not. Because that's an expression of love. And what if I just didn't show up for dinner at my home? Because I love my friends. I just want to go out with my friends instead. And then I come home to my wife, and my wife goes, Hey, I missed you today. I go, Well, you saw me yesterday. What's your problem? We've been together 18 years. I've had most dinners with you. I just decided I wanted to be with other people tonight. And sorry, it's not wrong to ever... I'm talking about just not showing up. I'm not talking about a planned guy's night out or something. I'm just saying, you know, I just didn't feel like coming home. You'd all say, that's just a bit weird. I just didn't feel like it, like this. I, I just... Hey, man... We show up because we love, not because it's easy, not because it doesn't, it's not sweat and effortless. It's called a labor of love for a reason. Do you know who knows about labors? Mom. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> Mums. You know what labors sound like? Please don't give us a demonstration. Just, it's a rhetorical question. Labors of love sound like effort. Paul calls this a labor of love. If loving other people is an effort to you, welcome. You're learning what it means to be a Christian. You're learning to put others above yourself. Well done. Number three, Paul says, your steadfast hope. And the W here is you're waiting. He says you're waiting for the sun from heaven. That's your steadfast hope. The world cannot get you down. You have a steadfast hope. You can't have a bad day. You can experience bad things. You can go through great suffering. You can be challenged. You can have health problems. You can have disappointments. You can uh, be fired. You can be under financial pressure. You can uh, lose a loved one. You can experience incredible difficulty in this life, but nothing can ultimately get you down. Why? Because you're in a position of waiting for Jesus to return. <laughs> I ran out of breath right then. Return. <laughs> you're waiting for Jesus to return. So you, you look at, you've got something on the other side of the horizon. So everything in life is between the horizon and you, and some of it is going to be really crappy. But you know that on the other side, Jesus is coming back. So Paul says, we mourn, but we don't mourn like the world. Why? Because we know what's going to happen. Jesus is coming back in eternity with God. Difficulty, struggles, loss and dangers, challenges. Yes, we'll experience all of it. We'll struggle. We'll lose sleep at night. But we know what's coming. So we have a steadfast hope. We have a joy, Paul says, a joy from the Holy Spirit. 
So what's the result? And I'm drawing it towards a close now. What is the result of the, the church that has these three healthy signs? Working to put off sin, walking in this labor of love towards each other, and it's costly and it's exhausting, and waiting for the return of Jesus. And thanks to the worship team who sang so well about this return of Jesus this morning. The result, Paul says, is that you become a witness to your city and beyond. Paul writes, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for uh, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, that's the whole region. That's like, not only have they heard about you in, in WA and, and even now in Australia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Basically, people all over the world are hearing about how people in Thessalonica have uh, put off their sin, have put the, uh, turned to God and are showing love to one another and are waiting for the Lord Jesus and everyone is hearing about it. It's a testimony. The results of the church is a witness. Do we go on the streets and... Uh, hound people in shirts, you know, or pickets, turn or burn, or stand on a box outside and start yelling at people, you know, uh, come to Jesus, He loves you, don't ignore me, or you'll go to hell. No, we don't, just to be very clear. No, we don't. Because the witness to the world is the church putting off sin and loving one another, and waiting for Jesus, and then sharing with those who are interested the gospel of Jesus wherever we can, in whatever normal ways we can, mostly through friendships and family. It's not bombarding people uh, with urgent messages that freak them out and make Jesus look super hyper weird. The church is so magnificent, so wonderful. You know, the majority of people that come to faith of friends of Christians. What does that tell you? It means they got to watch how their friends were living and they realized there was something to it. This thing was real. This is real. So how do we do this? Paul says we must become imitators, not imitations. You know, an imitation Christian can come to church because then they've done their good thing and then they can get on with their week. An imitation Christian can give some money to charity because then they can spend the rest of the money on whatever they want. An imitation Christian can read their Bible for 10 minutes because then they can give their eyes to whatever they want to the rest of the time and feel that their life is in a balance and they're mostly good. An imitation Christian can help someone across the road because then they've done a good deed and they can get on serving their own will for the rest of the day, the rest of the road. An imitation Christian can uh, spend some of their life on loving others in need so they can spend the rest of their life loving themselves in once. Paul says, don't, be, don't, don't try to do things. Be imitators of us. Be imitators of work, of walk, of wait. He says to them, you became imitators of us. But it didn't start with Paul. Paul says to the, uh, to the Corinthians, uh, sorry, he says to the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
So Paul learns how, how to live from the Lord. Paul's imitating the Lord. They're imitating Paul. Someone said something nice about me at community group. It was so nice to hear it. But as they said it, they identified, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Thanks, Andy. It's starting to feel so much nice in this room. Um, people are starting to wake up again. Don't know if it's because I'm almost ending or because of the <laughs> air conditioner. Um, has it ever happened that someone gives you a compliment and you realize what they're saying is true, but it's really not about you? It's so unlike you. And that's what happened. Someone gave a compliment and said, Mark, you're so good at X. And I've lived with myself for most of my life. <laughs> Maybe all of my life. 42 years. And I know what I'm like naturally without the Lord, without Jesus, without walking with God. And what they said is not like me without Jesus. And I know that I, it was imitating something that a brother taught me about Jesus, that he learned from another brother or sister that taught him about Jesus, that learned it as God discipled them. In other words, we became imitators of each other in the Lord. And I, was li I, I get to live in the character of Jesus by seeing it in others and then imitating it. And Jesus, make me like that. Make me more loving. Make me more kind. Make me more gentle. Make me more gracious. Paul said to the Corinthians, you became, um, he said, I urge you to imitate me. And then he says, be imitators of me, he commands them, as I am of Christ. So how is Jesus the standard of faith, love, and hope? Those are the virtues. Work is faith. I take off sin and trust God because it's faith. I have the virtue of faith. I walk in love towards others because it is the virtue of God's love pouring out in, of my heart. And I wait for Jesus because I have, there's the virtue of hope. There's something in the future. I've got a bright future. We've got a bright future in Jesus. Faith, love, and hope. These are the virtues. How's Jesus the standard of faith, love, and hope? Well, Jesus couldn't put off sin because He had no sin. But Jesus' work was to defeat sin, demolish sin. He worked against sin to destroy sin. Because He had no sin to put off, He was the only one qualified to totally destroy sin and the penalty of sin. And so through Jesus' death on the cross, He defeats sin, He defeats the legal requirements of sin, uh, he defeats the, the hold that sin has on our lives and He rises with power to give us power to say no to sin so that we can die to sin because Jesus has put sin to death. He's the standard of faith. Jesus is the standard of love. There's nothing Jesus needed in us. There's nothing Jesus had to come uh, to earth to, to gain from us, to get from us. Jesus came and lived and sacrificed His life and died and was raised to life. He went through all of that hellish pain, uh, being uh, abandoned by the Father for us because of love. Love. Because He loved us. Nas, Nas asked me once, if she passed away, would I get, re get married again? I said, probably not. And she said, why? I said, because courtship is so exhausting. <laughs> it's so much effort. It's so tiring. I don't think I could do that again. 
Why did Jesus go to, through such great effort? Why do we court someone? Why do we try to get someone to marry us? Why do we try to win their heart? Because we love them. Jesus loves us with a much greater love than any of us have ever understood or could imagine. And he went to every length. It's the only reason. How is Jesus the standard of hope? Jesus says, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. There's not a moment in history since Jesus left that he hasn't thought about when he returns. And now and then we might remember that Jesus is coming back. Now and then we might sing songs and go, oh yeah, yes, Jesus is coming back. Now and then we might have a tough day and go, oh no, how am I going to face the day? Oh, hold on. Oh yes. Good news. Jesus is coming back. Okay, this isn't going to be the end of me. Uh, Jesus never has to be reminded that he's coming back. He never forgets. He's always excited and thinking about returning to you. Isn't that amazing? Whenever you think about Jesus returning, whenever you remember it, you're only joining in his thoughts. I think that's amazing. Whenever you sing to Jesus with joy, you're only joining his song over you. Jesus is the epitome of hope. So we're called to be imitators of those who imitate Christ. Work in faith. Take off the sin that so easily entangles and trust God. We talk about that in our motto, Jesus above all. Walk in love. Make every effort to seek the good of your brothers and sisters. We talk about that as others before me. Jesus above all, others before me. Wait in hope. Live expectantly for the return of Jesus. We have a bright future. When we're living like this, remember the letter is not to the Christian in Thessalonians. It's not to each Christian in Thessalonica. It's to the Thessalonians. We have a collective wisdom as we put off sin, as we love one another, as we wait for Jesus to come back with great joy. The world can see that there's a different kind of society, there's a different kind of life, there's a different kind of person, there's a different kind of world, there's a different kind of dream and ambition, one that the world can't touch, something more lovely and wonderful, and everyone is invited. Everyone. So we have a witness. Are you an imitator or an imitation? Are you becoming like Christ in work and walk and waiting? These are the marks of a Christian. Let's put them on. Let's grow in them. Let's these, let these virtues increase. Let me pray.